Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Who among us knows when we're going to die? We don't know. And so if you know who those treasured people are that you want to be with you, then how much better will your dying be if you begin to really work at nurturing those relationships today? Hello, everyone, and welcome back on our show, What We Can't Not Talk About, a podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, as we happily come back after a long break, I have the great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Lydia Dagdale, Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics and Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University. Good morning, Lydia, and welcome on our show. Thank you. Good to be here. Lydia is also the author of The Lost Art of Dying, a book that I recommend to all our listeners and that briefly we will be discussing together with the author. But before we do so, I wanted to introduce today's conversation with a few reflections. If you allow me, Lydia, just yes, a couple of minutes. So I think that we could all agree that death is truly the one thing that we can't not talk about the one and only unavoidable event that makes us all equal. And nonetheless, the topic seems to be absent from our conversations. And indeed, I would not be surprised if some of you were not listening, you know, would stop listening to this podcast once you understand that the topic of today is going to be the art of time. We talk about prevention. We talk about treatments. We talk a lot about assisted suicide. But nowadays, we rarely talk about this inevitable end, about our finitude, as Dr. Dagdell calls it in our book. And then a second thought, which is related to the core mission of the Austin Institute. What would our families look like if we really thought about our finitude, if we really thought about our death while we were living? If we all lived with a constant awareness that there will be a time which we can't predict, when we will be more dependent on others, would men still live as bachelors until their hair turns gray? Would we women think of children as a burden? Would we think of work outside the home as self-fulfillment and self-realization? And then the third and final one, who would our friends be? What would our job be? How would our cities look like? What would our social life look like if we reminded ourselves that there will be a time when we will need friends to visit us, bring us food, to spend time reading a book, when we will not be able to drive or use the metro or drink expensive liquors and go to fancy restaurants? And would we ever pray? So, of course, my guess is that if we all thought more seriously about that, most of us would be married and probably only once with plenty of kids, with a lot of good and stable friendships, our towns would develop around little centers, perhaps maybe like the place where I'm from, northern Italy, and maybe our nomadic lives would become more sedentary much sooner and probably would pray more too. So in other words, if we thought more about death, we would score higher on all the predictors of a flourishing and good life, according to the social sciences. And rather than paralyzing us in fear as a gene during COVID, a true awareness of death would help us build this good life with thriving families, with communities, with loving friends, 
a good life that we try here at the Austin Institute to help our students build for, for themselves. So these reflections, I wanted to make them because throughout her book, professor, physician, and author Lydia Dugdale argues precisely this point. At least that's how I read the book. In order to die well, she argues, we need to live well. And to me, this was a very, very, very good reason to invite her on our show and to talk about the lost art of dying is because we want to have a good life. So after this long premise, Lydia, thank you for allowing me to make that, but th these points, but I think we can now start going a little deeper into the conversation and the content of what I really think was an amazing book. I think you summarized it. We, we could stop the interview here because oh. that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> no way. There is a lot, a lot, a lot more to the book. And, and that's what I want to talk about now. But if you don't mind, first of all, I would like to know why probably very busy physician and mother decided before the pandemic to write a book about the lost art of dying. Sure. So I have long been very comfortable with talking about death. I grew up in a home where talk of death was relatively common. My grandfather was a bomber pilot in World War II, and he uh, not only did he have a plane crash during flight school because the engine malfunctioned and his flight instructor ended up dying in that crash. My grandfather was hospitalized for a few months. He ended up being shot down during the war and was a prisoner of war for quite a while in some pretty horrible circumstances. And I think that those experiences of death as a very young man really shaped him. Plus, he was an incredibly hilarious man. So when he came back from the war and kind of started his life and married my grandmother and started having a family and, and working, this idea that you had to think about death, not in a macabre sort of way. This wasn't, you know, some sort of strange, um, I don't know, fascination, but this was just part of reality. People die. People die, and so you got to be prepared. And he, you know, was on great terms, even as a young man with his undertaker. And, you know, he had his undertaker arranged, uh, the funeral home director. It was all arranged from when he was quite young. And then as he lived on and on and on and on until his 90s, of course, those relationships shifted slightly. But this was the environment in which I was raised. This is just part of life. Death is part of life. We don't have to get hung up on it, but we do need to be aware of it. So when I found myself in medicine and realized that not only were so many of my patients afraid to die, that so many of my patients had not even thought about their mortality at all, but my colleagues, fellow doctors, were equally afraid and reluctant to talk about death. And that to me felt wrong. You know, talk about bad medicine. If a patient is dying and you can't tell your patient that he or she is dying, there's a problem there. But I've had colleagues say, you know, I myself am so afraid to die. I'm not going to go there with my patients. And then if you start talking about, well, what is medicine for? Some people think the aim of medicine is to delay death indefinitely. And if that's the way you see the role of medicine, then the role of the physician is certainly not to cozy up to death. It's to sort of keep it at a distance. So I, you know, I got into medicine and we had patient after patient after patient whose organs were being maintained, even as they were very clearly actively dying in the intensive care unit. And, you know, this is a tension that, that doctors and families and patients face all the time. You know, are the doctors too quick to want to stop life support? 
Or are the families being ridiculous in really torturing grandma, even as she's like clearly, clearly dying? You know, this is this is a kind of language that is passed back and forth. And, you know, it's complicated. It's hard to know. And, and we end up with these really sort of terrible dying processes in the ICU, in the intensive care unit. So I experienced this even as a young trainee. And I, I started thinking there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way for us to talk about death. As a society, we're not really talking about it. There's got to be a model. And I just started reading. I read so much on end of life and preparation for death. And then at one point, I stumbled across this medieval model uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was exactly the second question. I mean, you indeed anticipate yeah. a few of the, the, the following ones, but that was exactly the, the second question. I'm still impressed by the timing. The fact that that your book came out, if I'm not wrong, just like the the year before COVID started, which... No, the book, well, the book was written a year before COVID started, but it was released in July of 2020. So it was released right during the start. I mean, really the first few months of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That made me, you know, thinking about, you know, timing. I think that there was a reason for you to write that thing now. And maybe I, I I am persuaded that a lot more people... You know, having seen the fear that COVID has generated, and especially in the young people, the students that usually listen to us probably are more interested than they were years ago, a couple of years ago. And wait, how should I handle this? Because I can't live in anxiety. Mm. I think that the timing was, you know, providential somehow. But this lost art of dying. So this medieval pamphlet, this medieval self-help, how do you want to call it? You know, the this tradition, maybe probably calling it a tradition, which is always a term for something we should, you know, remember that there is some wisdom there. What is it? What was this Ars Moriendi? And especially, you know, what is the thing that we can learn from this tradition the most? Sure. So maybe before I go into that, I'll just say that since you mentioned that the the book was released during the pandemic, the Ars Moriendi, that's a, a Latin phrase that means the art of dying. And the phrase really refers to a genre of literature, the Ars Moriendi books. It's a genre of literature that they really were. They were handbooks on the preparation for death. Yeah, self-help, the closest thing you, you get to self-help. And really self-help literature in the late medieval period was very in, in fashion. You know, how to court a lady and how to embroider a handkerchief and how to use your silverware. These books were written on these things. And so the idea how to die well, or the, you know, the art of dying would have been very in vogue. But what happened in the mid 1300s is there was a different sort of pandemic. There was the outbreak of bubonic plague or uh, black death, as it's often been called, that swept throughout Western Europe. This is around the 1350. It was several year period multiple waves of devastation, decimation, that this particular plague is caused by a bacteria carried by rats and fleas, and it would sort of sweep through. Of course, just like with COVID, urban centers were more affected. Why? Because there are more rats, right? More rats, higher density, wealthy people with country villas could escape to the countryside. But what happened, historians think that maybe as many as two-thirds of the population of Western Europe died during this period. Uh, Some people recently, very recently in the last year, have suggested that's an overestimate. But when we do look at church burial records and things like that, especially in urban centers where they were well-documented, there definitely were areas where as many as two-thirds of the population died. 
even in the bubonic plague was really common from about 1300 to 1800 all throughout Europe. So even other outbreaks of plague that were less devastating, we would routinely see 30 to 50% of the population die. So this was at London, uh, London and then what was it, 1665, Bordeaux in 1585, I think. It was, there were large percentages of the population died. So this wasn't crazy, but what was sort of really shocking about this particular outbreak of plague is that it was really across Europe, started in the East and moved across and was uniformly devastating. Well, the leading social authority at this time is the church. This is, you know, 1300s, this is pre-Reformation. So it's not Catholics and Protestants, it's just the Western church. And the people who survived plague were on the whole illiterate. About 80% of them were not really able to read and write. So what do you do if you don't know if your your spouse or your kids or your brother or your sister if they were buried properly did they have appropriate funeral rites mm-hmm. did anyone pray for them did anyone accompany them there started to develop kind of a, an existential concern that perhaps the souls of the departed would not be secure and you know very enchanted time in history so what do the people do? The survivors turn to the church and they say, okay, you guys are the social authorities. Tell us what to do because death is going to come back. Death is inevitable. And if it's not bubonic plague, it's going to be famine. It's going to be war. Something is going to take our lives, right? Very stark contrast to how we think about death now. Now we think about death as sort of optional, right? It'll, it happens to really super old people if it happens. But that wasn't the way it was in the Middle Ages. I mean, death was very much a fact of life. So, you know, I'm no church historian, but the church in the late 1300s was in a real mess and uh, the church leadership was not able to quickly respond to the people because they had two men and later three men claiming to be Pope. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you take care of the people when you can't even figure out who the Pope is? So anyway, it takes until the really early 1400s when they resolved this problem. But one of the first books that began to circulate after the church resolved its Pope problem was the very first version of the Ars Moriendi. And we think that, we don't know who wrote the first version, but we think it was someone related to the Council of Constance, which was a meeting, a four-year meeting that resolved this Pope problem. And these handbooks started to circulate. The printing press is developed. They're printed. By 1450, there's an illustrated version that was created for the illiterate or semi-literate public. So that even if you couldn't read, you could study these images and you would get a a good sense of what the virtues were that you needed to cultivate, that you needed to inhabit in order to die well. Um, But these were also not just virtues for the end of life. These were virtues that one could cultivate over the course of one's life. So I'll just very briefly say Ars Moriendi is a genre of literature, becomes enormously popular. It circulates for about 500 years. These handbooks were adapted and adopted by different cultures, even different denominations, even different religions. So once you have the Protestant Reformation split between Catholics and Protestants in true Protestant fashion, there's a Protestant version, many Protestant versions. There are Jewish versions. By the 1800s, there were straight up secular versions. You did not have to believe in an afterlife or anything, but being brought up well meant you thought about your finitude, you you recognized your mortality, and you lived life well in light of that. So when did we stop? Aha, uh-huh. 
So when did we stop? So it's so interesting to me because it was interesting to me to talk about this so much during the pandemic. The Ars Morandi fell out of fashion around the 1920s. Why? Well, from 1914 to 1918, you have World War I. Global war, millions of people dead, not just soldiers, but also civilians, women and children. And even before World War I ended, you have the outbreak of the influenza pandemic of 1918, which was actually 1918 to 1920, and epidemiologists think occurred in four major waves over two years, you know, not dissimilar to COVID, frankly. So you have six years, four years of war and two years of flu, global death, 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 and more death, and no one escaped, right? They didn't really need a reminder, you mean? Right. Yeah. So so you hit the 1920s and in the US at least, not in Europe necessarily, but in the US, it's a time of immense economic prosperity. We have a building boom, women get the right to vote, we discover antibiotics, people chop their hair, women start yeah, wearing start short dancing. skirts, right? Yeah. Jazz dancing, everyone's buying cars. You have a new lease on life. Why would you think about death? Yeah. Why would you think about death? And so that even if you look at the text of homilies, like priests and pastors, what they preached on, the text of homilies shifts really remarkably in the 1920s. Because you would, even if like no one else talked about death, your priest would always remind you of your mortality. That really went to like Good Friday and Ash Wednesday. Which, however, you know, we could hold them culpable, but to me, it feels like the things that in the fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties has been take have been the things that have been taken for granted in school, right? Certain things that have stopped being taught because, Oh, we all agree on that. You know, some, mm-hmm. some of the basics and of the classics and I'm like, Oh, who's gonna, you know, who's gonna dispute that. And now we live really in a time where we need to defend, you know, the, the most basic truths and just start to prove them because they've not been. So I don't know if the, that's the risk that humanity keeps running over and over whenever we think that, oh, okay, well that, you know, this is something no one is going to discuss, you know, and I, I can see the twenties as you describe them as a time that, yeah, we're we not talking about death, but we are all very, very aware that, you know, we might die tomorrow. It's not that we have forgotten that. Whereas today that is what we face, right? So the comparison is that I would believe that I, I put myself in the crowd that the younger generations that have lived this pandemic, probably even the older ones, not having lived through real global wars, you know, got to the point of facing the possibility of dying really unprepared. Yeah. I mean, I I know your remarks at the outset of this suggested that in your experience also, it seems like more people are interested in engaging this, but that's not been my experience, actually. I've probably given 150 book talks since the book was released, and it has come up time and time again that at least in the conversations I've, I'm having with people, that the sort of baby boomer and older crowd was really sobered by COVID. Many of them, you know, they talked to their lawyer, they got their will in order, they're uh, mending relationships, they're, you know, repairing things with their kids, they're getting their stuff in order. The younger generation that I've talked with feels kind of full of anxiety, but without really having the resources or knowing where to go. Oh yeah, so, no, no. And that's what I'm saying. That we, That's what we're going to give. I, I'm not, I don't know if I, I, I sounded like I think that they already found the resources. I think that they haven't. 
But I think that they have faced this anxiety. And so they are fully yeah. aware that there is something missing, right? That there isn't, yeah. th th yeah. they know that there is something, well, I know that there is something I was a little less prepared. And I must confess, I'm someone who has been, you know, thinking of death since a very early age. And, you know, and I, I want to share maybe something more if we have time in this interesting conversation, but at the same time, only this year, I mean, this is probably the only year where I could have, you know, started your book and go from start to finish without living it there. As I know some friends of mine have done, because it's hard to make peace with that, right? Just make peace with the fact that you're mortal and, you know, you can't find a way out. So I'm only saying that I think your book and this talk, this talk will lead them to the book, might be the resource that they're looking for. And so on that note, one of the first, one of the things you describe in the book are the virtues that the Ars Moriendi described as important for a person dying, right? So patience being one, but then, you know, I think that there was also this idea of like surrounding yourself with the right people while you are alive. But then you talk also about the things that you know are important because you are a physician and you often have dying patients. And so you are witnessing the realities of what death looks like and what people actually need. So you talk a lot about community and the importance of not dying alone, something that unfortunately happened even more during COVID. But then it is a reality though in hospital. So what is this loneliness that you're talking about and what do you think is the way to have that kind of community? Yeah. So before I wrote this book, I have an academic book that's an edited volume and essentially a publisher read an article I wrote and asked me to trying to think about from an academic perspective, what would an Ars Moriendi look like if we created one today in a society that's not governed by one church, in a society where many people don't believe in an afterlife or God or anything? What would an art of dying be in such a society? And so I convened a group of scholars, some docs, some theologians, some philosophers, a lawyer, and we got together and sort of worked on this and, and I put the book together. And one of the things, there were sort of two themes that came through as we were considering all of this, reading other versions of the Ars Moriendi, all different religious and non-religious versions, just looking at, at what the content was, pondering our, our sort of secular pluralistic society. Two themes emerged. One is that to die well, you need to acknowledge your finitude, right? You need to acknowledge your mortality because if you think you're never going to die, then we can't even begin the conversation, right? Mm. Or if you're not willing to even, you know, face your finitude, right? As you just were saying, Mariana, that some of your friends just have to put the book away. One guy who reviewed my book, he said to me, there was nowhere to hide. And I thought that was a very interesting observation. I mean, I'm so immersed in it. I, I'm not hiding from it. Like it, there's no hiding. But for him, older boomer, he felt like he wanted to sort of escape from the content, but had nowhere to go, couldn't escape. So I didn't mean to make people feel trapped. But this acknowledgement of human finitude is absolutely core. But then the other element that's absolutely core to any conception of the Ars Moriendi is the role of community. We are embodied creatures. We are relational creatures. There's no way that we can live life in total isolation. And even the sort of hermit who goes off is always doing that in relationship to those he's leaving, right? So it's not 
even to isolate oneself means that there is a community behind, right? There are, there's, there's a group of people behind from whom he's isolating. So the problem is that in sort of modern society, first of all, you know, the average American moves, what, what is it like every five years? Mm. So there's a lack of cohesion. You know, people don't live near their families. They don't live near their communities. There are all these reasons for it. I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily a bad thing, but it creates obstacles to natural community. So what is the result? The result is that if you want community, you have to work at. This is not something that you just default into because of place. You have to work at building this. So one of the things I, a thought experiment I sometimes give to people when I'm, I'm speaking on the book is, think about this, who would you want to be at your deathbed? And women who give birth will think about who they will allow into the birthing chamber, you know, who can be in the hospital when they give birth. Who do you want there when you're dying? And, and then I ask, all right, you think about that. So what is the state of those relationships now? And once a, a guy said to me, he raised his hand, he said, uh, so I know who I want to be there when I'm dying, but frankly, I can't stand the guy right now. Is it okay if I just wait to work at repairing the relationship? And, and everybody laughed because of course that's silly. Who among us knows when we're going to die? We don't know. And so if you know who those treasured people are that you want to be with you, then how much better will your dying be if you begin to really work at nurturing those relationships today, right? Yeah. It's never too late. I think it's already a, an advice I've given to some of my girlfriends when they were considering the guy, if that was a good guy to marry. And like in my example is just like, well, imagine one of the two is going to get really, really sick and, and that you are fine, right? Having him being the one person that reads the book to you, that, you know, walks you around, assuming that he's also the one willing to do that. That's right. So no, so the community you talk about that we need to build is this one and you compare it to the loneliness. What is the loneliness that you see? Is there, so it's a lack of community. Is it related to the hospital? Well, so there, I mean, there's certainly an element of that. I, I mean, that was a huge problem during COVID, which is something I've written on elsewhere in journal articles, but this problem of lonely dying, it was horrifying. It was horrifying to me as a medical doctor taking care of COVID patients that the best I could do is hold an iPad up to a dying person who's already got a breathing tube in and is like semi-coherent and say, you know, kind of like, Mr. Smith, say goodbye. Say, you know, here's your wife. Here's your... It was horrible. It was horrible for us as physicians, nurses. It was horrible for the patients. It was horrible for the families. That's a problem. That was a COVID problem. I will just say, because this often doesn't get enough attention, it was much worse in nursing homes on the whole than in hospitals. And the reason why it has to do with how nursing homes are governed versus how hospitals are. Hospitals tend to have a little bit more freedom in their policies and nursing homes are a little bit more beholden to dictates of the government. And so it really, in nursing homes, it was 20 months of such severe restrictions that it was really hard to get people in to visit, you know, older folks and folks who are impaired have various disabilities and things. So there's that, there's the COVID lonely dying and isolation, but then there's this bigger problem of, you know, this idea, especially in urban centers, that we are living these atomized lives that, it, you know, it's about me and my existence. And to the extent that I have relationships, they're just, I just instrumentalize them, right? Those relationships are a means to some other end. 
but it's not about living life together. And it's not about, you know, iron sharpening iron and helping us grow together and cultivating virtue together and investing together. It's really about using people for some other gain. And that's sadly very common. And then, you know, in New York, I'm sitting here looking out at an apartment block through the window. I don't know how many hundreds of people are in that building. I've never met any of them. And it is not uncommon in these big urban centers. And the book I talk about New York City and I talk about Tokyo for people to die alone. And nobody knows until you smell the body under the door. Or until you're behind on rent a few months and the landlord opens up the door and finds a decaying body. that I saw during COVID, uh, one of the neighbors across the street, again, I don't know who the person was, had died. I don't know if this person died of COVID or not. And I saw EMS carrying the dead body out through the window. So apparently, I mean, there was a first floor apartment. Somebody must have smelled the body. And there they had to go in through a window because the door was bolted shut and removed the body. So the isolation, the loneliness, the way that we see community only in terms of what it gives us. Only when we when we need it, right? Like on call, like we call yeah. only if we call the friend is gonna come over, but there is no unexpected visit. There is no unwelcome, you know, or even the like we pick and choose when and how. Yeah, the the opposite of what. I call it community by accident here with the students. And I say that it, that is more important than the community by choice. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, t- talking about, it was something I had for later, but I think it follows nicely here. You have words of advice as a physician, not against a hospital, not at all. I mean, I don't want you, you know, and me to be misunderstood, but you do specify, you know, Hospital is okay when you need to be treated for something, but then it is that lonely place where probably you don't want to be in the last days of your life. And you also have some words against resuscitation, but I also know that you're not in the least in favor of assisted suicide nor of, you know, or letting people, you know, go too soon. So for the lay person, how do we understand where the line is, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's so tricky. I sometimes get into trouble depending on who the audience is (sighs) because I misunderstood, like either is advocating, you know, letting people die too soon, or it's a fine line. Okay. The more you are engaged in the trappings of the hospital, right? Using the technology, the harder it is to see life and death because our technology can, you know, I mean, we, it is not unknown that we will have people literally decaying from inside their bodies are breaking down and yet we have machines to keep them going. That's too far. You know, when someone is just melting as a body decomposing in the hospital, but yet we're keeping the heart going. We're still breathing for them. The kidneys are, you know, we have machines to do all this. So it's hard when you're in the hospital because the technology blurs things so much. But, you know, this is where some of the Catholic moral teaching is really helpful because there's a distinction between ordinary and extraordinary means. And you can say, well, how do you even know what is ordinary and extraordinary? Even within uh, Catholic moral thinking, there have been different views on whether artificial nutrition and hydration is obligatory or not. We know that as people are dying, they often don't want to eat or drink and they are not thirsty or hungry. That's a natural part of the dying process. And it's it's sort of wonderful. I mean, how wonderful that as someone is dying, they're not craving food when they wouldn't be able to eat very well or they choke. I mean, it is kind of a wonderful thing. So 
then you have to ask, let's just say you're not at home where it's a little bit clearer who's living and dying, but you are in a hospital for whatever reason. And sometimes that's a really good and safe place to be living out your last days. Then the question becomes, is a particular intervention causing more harm than good? Or will it lead to some greater good? Now, there are some people who feel like every day on earth is worth it, even at the cost of in very invasive technology. Mm -hmm. I think if someone is actively dying and there's no hope of recovery, then why are you sort of maintaining the vital functions of this dying person? It's not for the dying person because the dying person may not be able to engage the family at all. Is it just to keep the body warm? Well, then that's for the family. And I think that's where we have to ask these really critical questions. What are the harms of this intervention? What are the benefits? Are there any benefits at all besides keeping the body warm? And then what I kind of make a plea for in the book is ask tough questions of your doctors. Ask for answers. Because I do think, uh, I've been a patient myself, we sort of far too easily acquiesce. But doctors are also constantly gauging, is this a family that's going to want to keep grandma alive? forever and ever and ever, even when grandma has terrible wounds and her body's breaking down? Mm -hmm. Or is this a family that says, you know, we talked with grandma and she doesn't want to die in the hospital. We want to try to get her home. Doctors are also doing this dance. So the more you can communicate with your doctors, the clearer they can communicate with you. I think probably the best way to put it, just ask questions, ask questions, ask for answers, ask for numbers, and then try to really assess as a particular intervention going to have a benefit, hopefully that is oriented toward a patient's health, right? And flourishing. And if it's not oriented toward their health and flourishing, there's no moral obligation to use this highly sophisticated technology just to delay the moment of death. I recommend your book also because you talk a lot of, you know, about a lot of little stories, stories of people that are terrified of dying and how awful those days are, you know, regardless of how much they spend in treatment. And then about battered deaths of couples and, you know, people that are treated by their friends, even while they are at the hospital. You talk about the role of beauty and of art also. And I would say that is in every good novel, they also mention an interesting painting, the Eisenheim altarpiece. And I was fascinated. I went and I looked more about it. And I know that there's also like, there's a lot of, there are a lot of stories about that altarpiece, but would you mind saying a couple of words of that? Sure. Yeah, so a friend of mine who's a painter knew that I was writing this book on plague and preparation for death. She had been on this big art tour in Europe. She does pretty modern abstract stuff, but she went to see the Isenheim altarpiece. It's in Colmar, France, and dates to the 1500s. Gorgeous, multi-layered, lots of different panels, some sculpture. The colors are extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And she said, you have to go see it because the altarpiece is dedicated to plague sufferers. And she told me that the body of Christ on the, you know, hanging on the cross is a body that is riddled with plague. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting, right? That you, like, they would, that this altarpiece would be dedicated to those who suffered from plague. Uh, actually, now we think it's dedicated to probably two different diseases, one called St. Anthony's fire, which is felt to be due to a kind of fungus poisoning, and then the other to bubonic plague sufferers. And then they're the patron saints of both bubonic plague and the St. Anthony's fire, this 
fungus poisoning. They're flanking the crucified Christ. And so, and then Christ's body is just, it's decimated by disease. So I went to go see this ultra piece. I thought, well, I have to write about this. I have yeah. to go see it for myself. And I, you know, there's a, a lot of anticipation. It's a work trip. You could justify it's it. It's a work trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, exactly. But there's a lot of anticipation if you're flying to France to see a painting. Is it really going to do something for you? You know, and I, I'm definitely moved by beauty and art, but not as much as some people. Mm-hmm. So there's this question of, am I going to be too cerebral about this? I'd read a ton about it. Anyway, I get there. And what really, really caught my eye, that Christ on the cross with the two patron saints, it, it's exquisite. It really is exquisitely beautiful. What really caught my eye was in another panel, which is a panel that shows uh, really the assault of St. Anthony as St. Anthony is in the desert, kind of communing with God, a bunch of demons attack him. And down in the corner of the painting is this creature that's sort of humanoid, but not fully human. It's very strange. It seemed to be a creature that had been affected by disease in some way. It's really the most extraordinary thing. And I hadn't ever seen a painting quite like that. And it got me thinking a lot about our bodies and how we experience disease and what does it mean to be a body and then watch the body sort of decay and lose appendages. That figure has stumps. It also has webbed feet. So you're not really sure what it is, but it's kind of humanoid. And thinking about, you know, I'm in my 40s. What does it mean for this and that to feel like I'm getting old, right? But certainly I've taken care of patients for the last 20 years who tell me these same things, right? Now this doesn't work and that doesn't work. And oh, Dr. Dugdale, don't get old. You know, they'd say that to me, just don't get old. And the way that we sort of experience loss and I've had patients who won't even face it. They run kind of blindly from the clinic. They don't want to hear that they've had a heart attack. They don't want to think that they had a mini stroke. They don't. They just don't want to think about the decay of their bodies. And then there's a way in which we can sort of say, this is, this is part of it. This is a part of me kind of progressing through life. And these should be reminders of our little deaths every day that help us gear up and anticipate that ultimate death for which we definitely need to prepare. So that's kind of what the painting did for me. Okay. Speaking of art again, you know, I was mentioning how, we were both thinking you as a child, me as a child about death for different reasons. But reading your book, I recall that one of the reasons I thought about death as a child in an interesting way was because of a story. And it's a story you write in your, it's written in your book. So I'd asked you before we started this, this episode, if you could get the page and read this two paragraph for us as a reminder. Sure. A merchant sends his servant down to the market. The servant quickly returns. He is agitated and frightened. He says to his master, down at the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned around, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Master, please lend me your horse for I must hasten away to avoid her. I will ride to Samara and there I will hide and death will not find me. The merchant agrees lends his horse, and the servant wastes no time in galloping off. Later that day, the merchant himself heads down to the market and finds death standing in the crowd. 
He asks her why she made a threatening gesture at his servant that morning. Death replies, that was not a threatening gesture. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Yeah. You know, if everyone listening to this audio was speaking Italian now, I would play immediately the song that I recalled as I read this. I would sing as a young child that is by you know, an Italian musician who is also a professor of Greek in an Italian liceo. It's exactly the story in music. So I will add the link to the podcast. But it made me think of how important it is. You know, we talk a lot here at the Institute about reading the right novels growing up because they give you the right ideas about the kind of man you should marry and the way things should be done and should happen. And the same thing is true about the music we listen to, right? So that message of having this thing about death and as a child realizing that, well, it's useless to, you know, think about something else or play, you know, more Netflix that night that you're feeling lonely. It's probably better, as you said, you know, go, go and, and go see those friends that you would like to have at your deathbed if, if something was to happen to you. I could talk to you for absolutely ever, but there were, I would think, probably two things that I would still want to touch on before we close this, this episode. And one had to do with the wisdom you've, uh, you think should be recovered, or at least that's, that's what I understand from your book, about the rituals. And I think that there was something very interesting that you described about the Jewish tradition related to the loss of someone who's dear to us. Yeah. Are you thinking of the sort of stages of mourning or are you thinking of the preparation of the body? I mean, the preparation of the body is also a very interesting part of it. And there is a, I think we should have a episode entirely on that. And have you ever watched the movie Departures? Uh, Not sure. It's a Japanese movie. I'm recommended to ever. It's about preparing that for, so, you know, that's another recommendation, but no, I was about the mourning stages. Yeah, Yeah. That was, yeah. So Judaism does so many things well, and it does death particularly well. So within Judaism, and I, you know, spent some time with some rabbi friends as I was writing the book, within Judaism, there's sort of prescribed kind of appropriate ways to mourn. And traditionally, and even still today, the body is buried within the first 24 hours. So when death happens, no matter whether it was expected or not, it's kind of rapid fire, get the body in the ground. And that first 24 hour period is really recognized as a whirlwind and all hands on deck to make that happen. And then that next seven days is called Shiva. And it's a period of sitting low, literally. So the word Shiva means seven in Hebrew, and it comes from the book of Job in the Hebrew scriptures where Job lost sort of everything, his kids and his wealth and his animals and his friends come and they sit low in the dirt. And so even today, it's not uncommon when families practice Shiva that they put boxes out and people sit low like on crates or boxes and not necessarily on the furniture. They'll cover mirrors and not wear makeup, not shave because it's not about appearances. It's, it, it's about just giving space to the expression of grief. The community comes and brings loads of food. So no one is going hungry. But also traditionally, again, no one speaks to the bereaved. No one speaks in a Shiva house unless spoken to. And, you know, that's a full week after burial. And it's really wonderful. I mean, for any listener who has experienced death, you realize that 
that first week or so after someone dies, you really just don't want to have to talk to anybody, but you also don't want to be alone, but you also don't want to cook, right? You, you also don't want to shower. And this is exactly how it plays out in Jewish homes. And then at one month, there's a, an acknowledgement of the one month anniversary of the death. And then at one year, another acknowledgement. And then there's typically every year on the day, there's a, a recognition. But it's this idea that, you know, there are these phases, the acuity, you know, first 24 hours is crazy. That first week, you just need quiet, but you need company. And then it gets a little bit easier as you go out and you really get back to normal, certainly, you know, pretty much back to normal by a year. And it's interesting because as a doc trained in Western medicine, our psychiatrists will often say, you know, normal grief lasts up to about a year. We see people actively grieving for about that year. But then when the one year mark hits, people kind of, they're starting to realize what, you know, call it the new normal is, but what life is like without that person. Yeah. And and then one of the things that I liked is how you mentioned that you went through some grief yourself and you wished people knew that was your moment. So I was thinking about, you know, the grandmothers in the little town I'm from, the still, you know, the wearing black or my, my grandma would wear this thing on her head because she had lost a child years, years before, right? Like, but she kept it on so that there was always a sort of respect for this person. And now instead we associate the wearing black just as a, as a duty instead of understanding mm-hmm. as it's something that we do for ourselves that could help us in the first place. Yeah. Another fascinating, really fascinating thing that you bring up in a book that again, I can't stop recommending and I will continue to do so. One final thing, you are, you know, the director also of a center in New York, and I know you do a lot for young students and we have a lot of medical students that also, you know, come to our events. And, you know, of course the the UT medical school is extremely important and there are a lot of good doctors, good future doctors, good contemporary doctors out there, but there is a problem. It seems to be that there is a problem today with doctors being seen as provider. And you mentioned Mm. this earlier and you mentioned this in your book. How do we turn that clock back? Yeah, so this idea of doctor as provider is really, it highlights the consumer provider nature of medicine, that medicine has really evolved or devolved, as the case may be, to be about making money, making money for healthcare systems, consolidating networks, you know, amassing, acquiring hospitals and sort of getting bigger and bigger. And what that's done to the doctor-patient relationship is turn it into more of a, a transactional relationship. I think that there's work that needs to be done at a systems level, and, and I'm doing a little bit of that work myself and some of my work in the ethics center. But the work that I really love is the work that happens with students and community, where part of what I have to do is sort of train them to be aware of the state of medicine, to see the world for what it is, to recognize that this sort of a practice environment is fundamentally broken and it's not oriented toward healing or health, but it is what we have. And if those students are called to be doctors in that system, they need to be able to see that these particular environments are malforming them and corroding them. And then they need to inhabit the virtues that will help them counteract that corrosion. And some of that, much of, uh, well, all of it really needs to be practiced then in community. So we have several different student groups right now. We're really, what we're doing is working to inhabit the virtues in community together so that these students, when they go forth, these are their colleagues, these are their partners in doing good work and practicing good medicine, even when 
the system is kind of colluding against them. So there's a, that could be a separate episode too. There's yeah. a lot to see about that, but it is important work that we need to be doing with medical students and trainees. If I may summarize it, it sounds to me from what you described that true, we could fix the system, but you just said something that I love repeating over and over and over that the idea that you change the person by changing the system is the one that led to the worst atrocities. Um, so even if you were for the right goals, that's never the answer. You change the persons and then you change the system. So, you know, start by teaching your kids things that are right. And then going student by student, whatever their subject is to telling them about the virtues and the great books and how to think about life and religion and, you know, and then the medicine will go back to not being consumer provider. And, and I think, I don't know, I, I feel like this is the healthy approach and probably this is the American approach, you know, the one that at least made people like me come from other countries and think that this is a better place because the focus is, is on the person, but not in terms of like the isolated self but the person as the one that can actually do good things and change the world for the better. Well, I want to thank you very, very much for all this time and for having written this book or all the work you do in New York. And I hope you'll be in Austin sometime soon. <laughs> thank you, Marianne. This is so much fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.